Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22 and stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to start at verse 7. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. And they said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters, and you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, "This, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who is going to do this thing. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. It's now the day before Jesus' crucifixion. It is Thursday, and the celebration of one of the the three annual festivals, if you go to Exodus 23, you can read about those festivals, verses 14 through 17. One of those three annual festivals is upon them, the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover. All of the Jews, all of the males, actually, were required to make their way to Jerusalem, Exodus 23:17. Now here's here's a description of what is going on in Israel during this time and this is from Edersheim's The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. He says this, everyone was going to Jerusalem or had those near and dear to them there or at least watched the festive processions to the metropolis of Judaism. It was the a gathering of Universal Israel, that of the memorial of the birth night of the nation and of its exodus, when friends from afar would meet and new friends be made, when offerings long due would be brought, 
and purification long needed be obtained. And all worship in that grand and glorious temple with its gorgeous ritual. National and religious feelings alike stirred in which they reached far back to the first and pointed far forward to the final deliverance. So Jerusalem, Jerusalem is packed with those celebrating, think of this, celebrating Israel's deliverance from the bondage of slavery to the Egyptians. All is a buzz and a special joy like that of our, you know, own holidays is marking everybody's step. Paschal lambs are about to be slaughtered, roasted, eaten in haste. As Israel remembers this command from the word of God, Exodus 12. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves. According to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of the persons in them, according to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You, will, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So Israel is remembering this. Israel is celebrating this. Israel is reading this passage and doing these actions. And and all of it is just a celebration of the astonishing mercy of God to them. They are remembering that God destroyed the firstborn of man and animal. But seeing the blood of the lamb upon the doors, God did not add to those deaths the deaths of his people Israel. 
nor to their animals. They remained alive by the sheer mercy of God in providing this way of escape. There was, so there's great reason to rejoice, to remember and to rejoice. And now think of this. Now Jesus Christ, the God-man, the eternal Son of God, will be himself a sacrifice, a Passover. He is going to be the means of deliverance and salvation and freedom from, from bondage. Right? Not bondage to Egypt, but a more basic, a more pervasive bondage, bondage to sin. The substance of those yearly Passover shadows is now present and and about to be slaughtered once at the consummation of all the ages. Why? To put away sin. To put away sin. I mean, think of that. Put it away. Lock it up. Cast it off. Hebrews 9.26 He's about to die for the ungodly. He's about to to purify his people so that God may pass over them. As Romans 5.9 says, Jesus' blood is shed, and having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Sounds like a Passover, doesn't it? It is the Passover. So one last time, Jesus and his apostles would gather to participate in this commanded Passover ritual the day before the real thing, his own sacrifice. In verses 8 through 13, Jesus directs Peter and John, those two leading apostles, the, the two that would... Uh, that would run to the tomb to do the preparatory work for the Passover celebration. They were to go into the city, uh, follow a man. Who is he? We don't know who this man is. He's the man with the pitcher of water. They're to follow him, go into his house, ask about a guest room, and then prepare. And everything falls out just as Jesus has told them it would fall out. Peter and John prepare the lamb. They prepare the wine, they prepare the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread, and everything was now ready. And then we enter into the room where all these men are gathered together, and they're, they're, uh, don't pass over, I shouldn't use that word, it gets confusing. Don't overlook the fact that it says that they're reclining together around this table. That's common practice, but it's also clearly that they're there together to be together. The hour had come, it says. And so from verse 14 to 22, there, there are statements, statements that are Poignant, that are helpful, that are strengthening, that are challenging to the apostles. 
In verses 15 to 16, Jesus mentions what he desires to do before he suffers. In verses 17 to 18, Jesus shares a glass of wine with the apostles. Then he mentions he will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God comes. And then third, Jesus institutes the sacraments, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Verses 19 to 20. And then in verses 21 to 22, Jesus has words of rebuke for his betrayer. Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Now here's a question. Why would Jesus, it says that in verse 15, why would Jesus desire to eat this Passover with the apostles? It says he earnestly desired to eat this Passover with the apostles. Was it that it was the Passover Or was it simply the fact that he was able to spend this final time with his apostles? Or was it both? No doubt, no doubt his love for these men is deep. And and those, and those whom we love, we eat with. He wants to eat with his men one more time. And he's there and and they, They break bread. Yes, it's this ritual, but nonetheless, they are there eating and drinking together. Seems very clear to me in that here's Jesus just before his crucifixion eating a meal with the apostles. Then what does he he do shortly after his resurrection? He eats with them again. He cooks. He doesn't just eat with them. He cooks or, or makes possible this breakfast, and he eats with them. The Apostle John gives us this sweet scene after his resurrection, John 21, verse 9. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. And Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153 And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. I mean, it's so earthy, right? It's so common. It's so just down to earth. Come and have breakfast. It's the resurrected Jesus, the eternal son of God, saying, get the nets in and, you know, coffee's over there. None of his disciples ventured to to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and fish likewise. So Jesus is fellowshipping with these men, minus one, who will take his name out into the entire world. He, think of this, he, their creator, enjoys their company, and they enjoy him. In fact, he's making sure through the institution of the Lord's Supper that the meals are going to continue happening. There is no intimacy between God and man like this in any other religion. Their religion must be shrouded in transcendence in order to continue the ruse. Right? Not so true religion. 
Now here's the Son of God desiring to eat this meal with those he has created. It's stupendous. The dust that he fashioned into men. And now here he is eating with them and earnestly desiring to. But no doubt it is because this meal is also the Passover that Jesus also desired it and takes joy in it. The Passover remembrance was a pointed prophecy of Jesus Christ. And to contemplate that earlier deliverance from Egypt would give meaning to Jesus hanging on a tree. Delivering the world from from the slavery of sin. Twice Jesus makes mention of the fact that now that, that he would not do something again until a later point. He would not eat the Passover, and he would not drink the fruit of the vine. Both of these things we assume he did before that time. Teetotalers might object. But it's clear Jesus will not be performing these activities as he sits in session to the right hand of God, awaiting the consummation of the kingdom of God. In fact, the phrasing in the first part about the Passover should be understood as Jesus saying that He would never again celebrate the Passover. Rao makes that point in his commentary. The Passover becomes superfluous once Jesus has been sacrificed. He is the Passover to end all Passovers. He's the fulfillment. He's the the substance to which the shadows pointed. But again, think of the social aspect of, of this. Jesus is about to suffer. He's about to suffer in obedience to his father's command and the sweet fellowship they enjoy now is to be interrupted, not ended, just interrupted. You know, he's saying that this will stop, but there is a consummation coming and these things will continue. These men, save one, will be with Jesus in his kingdom, enjoying full freedom from sin and sinfulness, drinking with joy at the marriage supper of the Lamb, enjoying God forever. That is the message Jesus, their kind Savior, is leaving to them before he dies and goes away. There are other messages they will receive so that they will not lose heart as they begin the difficult work of building his bride, the church. And we remember what Jesus said as he reported to, you know, as, as it's reported in the Gospel of John. He said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Let me stop and make an application here. And, it, and it's about fellowship. I mean, think of this, the intimacy between Jesus and the apostles here. Christian fellowship is is essential. It's essential to the spiritual maturity of every Christian. We've been made to fellowship, and without it, we lose our spiritual bearings. But, but we can't wait for, for Christian fellowship to spontaneously develop around us. We have to provoke it. 
We have to be the means of that fellowship coming about, each one of us. Of course, these men are celebrating a Passover ritual, and much of this ritual was laid out for them. But nonetheless, Jesus gives thanks for that cup, and then it is shared. He takes that cup, and he makes sure that cup is shared. That's Christian fellowship. It's unity around Jesus. Hendrickson says of this, By ordering the contents of the cup to be divided among all those present, Jesus acting as the host emphasizes the unity which, when conditions are as they should be, exists among and is experienced by all the partakers. The purpose of Christian fellowship is to enjoy and protect the unity we have in Jesus Christ. I mean, isn't that how all things in the Christian life are? There's, there's something deeper than, than uh, surface level. When we come together for a conference on the Christian mind, we, we're not merely learning things. We're showing forth and enjoying Christian unity, true fellowship. And we grow into maturity together that way as a body. Begin cutting yourself off from the life of the body and you will be less mature. You will be less nourished and you will be different. And I've seen that time and time again. So Jesus here, the the sweet fellowship of the apostles is a lesson to us. Now we move on to... Jesus' words of institution. I don't have anything. I don't have anything profound for you here. Uh, I was reading reading an article this morning or this week about the presence of Jesus in the Lord's table and what we believe and what others believe, and and was struck by the fact that uh, Calvin. Calvin said we can say too much about it and it's and what we what we can't understand we we should just experience and and so you know I thought about what taking the this these words of institution and talking about the presence of the Lord in the table but I just have I'm not going to go there um I just have some some simple thoughts on what Jesus says here. Jesus takes some bread. He gives thanks. He breaks it and gives some to the men there. And with that bread, he says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's nothing on surface level that's hard to understand about that. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He breaks it, right, as a... As a a symbol. Then after they have eaten the bread, it follows the eating of the bread. Jesus takes another cup of wine and says, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now there's some things that may be difficult to understand in that. Why does he say new covenant? But these are words we've heard time and time again. As we come and celebrate the Lord's table, we hear these words and they they have a tendency to wash over us. Perhaps we hear them more often in the slightly different version of uh, the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 11, or Matthew's uh, version. And 
It's hard to, to, to speak of them in the abstract away from the actual celebration of the Lord's table where we have bread and wine laid out before us. But um, let me draw your mind to a few things. A few th- uh, the first of which I ran across in Thomas Watson's uh, work, The Lord's Table. On the breaking of the bread symbolizing the breaking of Jesus' body upon the cross, Watson writes this, Was Christ's body broken? Then we may behold sin odious in the red glass of Christ's sufferings. It is true, sin is to be abominated because it turned Adam out of paradise. And there are the angels down in hell. Sin is the peace breaker. It is like an incendiary in the family that sets husband and wife at variance. It makes God fall out with us. Sin is the womb of our sorrows and the grace of our comforts. But that which may most of all disfigure the face of sin and make it appear ghastly is this. It crucified our Lord. It made Christ veil his glory and lose his blood. So in remembering the broken body of the Lord, we we both remember the sins that require Jesus to be there and, and the propitiation gained because he went there. We grieve and we rejoice all at the same time. We sing a lament and we sing a shout of praise at the same time. Right? That, that broken body of the Son of God, broken because of, but also for my sins. I mean, these are complex remembrances. And those who want to reduce our remembrance of the cross to only sorrow, right? Navel gazing remorse. Or to only joy, grace, only simplicity, are missing something here about Jesus' broken body. Don't forget, as Watson brings out, that sin is only understood as we contemplate the broken body of the Son of God. The full extent of the heinousness of your sin will only be be properly uh, realized as you meditate on the broken body of Jesus Christ. And then the cup, the cup of wine which Jesus calls the new covenant in his blood. He connects this new covenant with his blood. And that blood that was shortly about to pour out of his veins... It is, it's that particular blood, that particular blood that makes this covenant, in a sense, new. Uh, since Genesis 3.15, that one covenant of grace has been enacted, right? And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And with Noah and with Abraham and with Moses, with David, that one covenant of grace is expanding out. And yet here now, as Jesus sits with his apostles, 
there is something so incredibly glorious that this further outworking of the one covenant of grace can be referred to as new. In fact, Hebrews tells us that it's better. What is better about it? Is it that the Old Testament was all law and the New Testament is all grace? No, we know better than that. Noah and Abraham and Moses and David were all saved by grace, God's gracious covenant. So why is this new and better? It must be something about the blood. Jesus says the new covenant in my blood. And Paul explains to us in Hebrews what that means. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Again, the thought that the Son of God would have blood and veins and a body is is simply mind-boggling. But that the blood would be shed, that that blood would be spilled, emptied from his veins, emptied from his body as a sacrifice, that's more than mind-boggling. It's like soul-boggling. Scripture says that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Has blood been shed? Yes, the very blood of the Son of God has been shed. Which means what? Your sins may be forgiven. Your horrible sins. Your embarrassing sins. Right, your nagging sins, the sins you committed when you were a child, the sins you committed this morning, the sins everybody around you knows about that you may not recognize about yourself, that we like to call our personality. Those sins that nobody knows about except you and God. The sins of your thoughts. The sins that are inward in your mind. There's forgiveness in Jesus Christ through his blood for all those sins. And so so my simple point is this. This is no ordinary blood. This is no ordinary blood. It's not goat blood. This is the blood of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And there is cleansing power in that blood. And you can trust in this blood. It's not the blood of an animal. It's not the blood of pigeons. 
It's better than that. And it was shed once at the fullness of time. And what more do you need to have confidence in the forgiveness of your sins? The Son of God, his blood was shed once at the consummation of the ages. The blood of God has been spilled. And I'll just close with these words from Hebrews 10, the next chapter. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by what? The blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we think about the, the broken body of the Son of God, the shed blood of the Son of God, and, and our minds are boggled. But we, we know from your word what it means. We know from your word what it accomplished. We know from your word that 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 blood perfectly satisfied you, Father. We know from your word that those who believe in Jesus have been cleansed from all their sins. Father, we thank you that Jesus did not regard equality with you a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, becoming a slave, hanging from a tree, being broken and bleeding, so that he might inaugurate this new and better covenant, the covenant of his blood. Father, we are grateful. We praise you and will do so eternally. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.